This is the weekly message from Hope Church Malmesbury. We're so glad you can join us. This week's sermon is part of our series, The Promise and the Purpose. We're walking slowly through the Gospel of Luke, verse by verse, promise by promise. Find out more about Hope Church and how to support our ministry at www.thehope.church. I hope this message will help you to see the good purpose that God has for your life and help you to walk in faith and rely on his promises every day. Here's the message. Luke chapter 19, verses 41 to 44. If you remember last week, Mark was preaching on the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on a donkey. And you remember everyone waves their palms. It's what we usually talk about on Palm Sunday. So I just want to keep that in your head a little bit, although I'm not really going to refer to it again unless God takes me to it. So let's read it. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade round you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation." There, when you go through a book in the Bible, you have to cover everything. Personally, I'd have skipped this. (laughs) And instead, it's what came to me on the sermon writer. Thanks, Mark. As I said to my mum, I think I've been stitched up. Um, (laughs) And then God brought light to it. He always does. So let's get into here. Throughout this journey we've been taking through the book of Luke, there is a constant negative Because on a regular basis, we read how the Jewish leaders, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, came against Jesus. They would constantly question his authority, and and all his choices were questioned. They generally just came against him all the time. So, I want to be clear here, because when we read of crowds following Jesus, and the times like the feeding of the over 5,000 people... We might think, oh, so many people, it was like a revival. It was everyone. Everyone followed Jesus. We may fall into that. And I want to take us out of that because that's the wrong impression. You see, it's not what happened. Yes, more than 5,000 people gathered to hear Jesus. That doesn't mean that more than 5,000 people decided to follow him all the time. It means that they were curious, absolutely. The majority of Jewish believers would have been very strongly influenced by what what you might call their pastors, by their Jewish leaders. They would follow their Jewish leaders' advice. They would listen to their Jewish leaders. They would do as they were told by their Jewish leaders. If their Jewish leaders are not thinking Jesus is great, then they're going to have a conflict within their hearts. The majority of God's chosen people would go along with the Pharisees and reject Jesus. So in this passage, what we see is Jesus looking at Jerusalem and taking a real, deeply moving moment to acknowledge that truth. And he wept. The word wept can be interpreted as wailed. 
Bible scholars describe this weeping as an outburst, a cry of frustrated desire. So let's be clear, this isn't a quiet sniffle and then he'll pull himself together. That's not what he's doing. This is gut-wrenching, overwhelming sadness flowing with holy tears. Now, apparently, some versions of uh, some early versions of the Bible removed Jesus' weeping from the text because they thought that weeping might make Jesus seem less perfect. Well, I think the reality is just the opposite. Hands up if you're with me. His compassion for those who are about to reject him and continue to reject him is what makes him more perfect in my eyes. In this place of heartbreak, break, Jesus spoke out and he was talking to Jerusalem. Verse 42, this is what he started with. He said, what would that you, even you, Jerusalem, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace? You know, I don't know if you remember this, but the name Jerusalem actually means city of peace. It's Jerusalem, Salem, Shalom. It's where we get Shalom from, Jerusalem, city of Shalom, peace. And I want to say that Shalom, it doesn't get summed up well in the word peace because peace in our mind is one thing. It's no war or a sense of okayness, isn't it really, I guess? I don't know if anyone wants to add to that. Anyone want to shout out something they think peace means? Quiet, Quiet. that's good, yeah. Yeah, Shalom is more than peace, but can be, if we really understood peace, would be summed up in peace. It is mental and physical wellness. It is joy. It is wholeness. Nothing broken. That is peace, if you really think about it. So, this is the city of shalom, the city of wholeness, of mental and physical well-being, and joy as well as peace. This is what it should be. But the ancient history of Jerusalem, right up to Jesus' day with the Roman rule, was a story of battles and besieges. Go read all the Old Testament and you'll see that actually peace had never lasted long in the city of Shalom. And time and again, God spoke through his prophets, telling the people that their imminent destruction and their current troubles were due to their rejection of his best way for them. Their blatant turning away from God and following their own ideas, brought them continued strife. So here was Jesus, the promised Messiah, King of kings, Prince of peace, standing in their midst. And again, they were rejecting and turning away from God's solution. Jesus' words in verses 43 to 44 about their future doom brought detail and confirmation of prophecies that you can find and read in Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel at least. The destruction of their city was inevitable because they continued to go against God despite all the prophets' warnings, and then Jesus himself, the solution, standing amongst them. But listen, Jesus, what I love about this passage is Jesus did not delight in their well-deserved destruction. Come on, be honest. Who else is like me? (laughs) I hope there's others like me who hope that someone gets their comeuppance when they wrong you, right? When they do something stupid, you hope they get their comeuppance. 
Like the other day, a car overtook me on the Brinkworth Road. Anyone who knows the Brinkworth Road, the road between Malmesbury and Swindon, it kind of goes like that. And I'm really used to that road. I have driven that road a lot. But I drive at the speed limit, and this car wanted to go over the speed limit. <laughs> and didn't think that at the speed limit was good enough. And so this car overtook me and sped at quite a speed in a dangerous way past me. And I have to admit that I said aloud to my car passengers, I hope he gets caught by the police. <laughs> because when someone breaks the best and safe way to do things, they really deserve an outcome, don't they? <laughs> But Jesus didn't show that attitude of, you brought this upon yourself, Jerusalem. No. <laughs> His heart ached. He didn't do that. He ached and he wept, desperate for a de different outcome. He didn't want what he was saying for them. The destruction of Jerusalem was a thought that caused Jesus to sob. So... Let's hear what became of the prophecy that caused Jesus such heartbreak. Did it ever happen to Jerusalem just as he said it would? Well, of course it did. Mark, tell us more. Now, in the eternal conflict, which is better, Star Wars or Star Trek, there is a stalking third horse. It is, of course, the tales of Henry Jones Jr. And I just wish I remembered my hat this morning as I go into full archaeology professor mode and tell you a little bit about the history of Jerusalem and the temple that is within it. Hum under your breath if you want to. Do, 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 do. Right, so about 1,000 years before Jesus was born, Solomon built a temple in Jerusalem. It's recorded in 2 Chronicles 2. And he says, Behold, I'm about to build a house for the name of the Lord my God and dedicate it to him for the burning of incense and sweet spices before him, for the regular arrangement of the showbread for burnt offerings morning and evening on the Sabbaths and the new moons, the appointed feast of the Lord our God, who has ordained these forever for Israel. The house that I'm to build will be great, for our God is greater than all gods. You know, the temple was the heart of the Jewish religion. All the stuff that used to happen in the tabernacle, that they, the tent that they dragged with them through the wilderness, was transferred to take place in this amazing building that Solomon built. It was the place where the daily sacrifices would take place. It was the place where the high priest and all the Levites dwelt and operated. It was where all the feasts and the festival that defined the Jewish year, took place. And for almost 400 years, things continued as they should until Babylon invaded. An invasion that had been warned about by the prophets, encouraging the nation to return to God, to honour the covenant that Yahweh had made with them. But the cries of the prophets fell upon deaf ears. And so the word of the Lord came to pass, and Babylon invaded knocking down the walls of Jerusalem, wrecking the temple, and taking the whole nation into captivity for 60 years. We said that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, he took about 10,000 people into captivity the first time, including the king and all those who had surrendered with him. In addition, he carried away all the treasures from the temple, all the gold, the silver, all the jewels from the royal palace. 
11 years later, Nebuchadnezzar comes back from Babylon, this time destroying the city of Jerusalem, destroying the temple and taking all but the poorest remnants of the Jews back into captivity in Babylon. You know, 800 years before this happened, God had declared when he made his covenant with Israel in the book of Deuteronomy, he said, if you refuse to listen to the Lord your God and do not obey all the commands and laws I'm giving to you, the Lord will scatter you. Yeah, and the nation refused to listen to God. Judah refused to listen to God and God just did what he'd promised. Now, this is where the songs come from, yeah, by the rivers of Babylon, where we sat down and we wept as we remembered Zion, another name for Jerusalem. And then King Cyrus of Assyria, the Assyrian Empire is on the rise and he attacks Babylon and he conquers Babylon. And God grants the Jewish nation favour in the eyes of Cyrus who allows the Jews to return to Jerusalem. And Zerubbabel starts to rebuild the temple. He lays the foundations. Nehemiah starts to rebuild the walls. And this is the era known as the Second Temple. And this Second Temple that was rebuilt when they returned from captivity in Babylon was the same temple that was in operation continuously until the time of Jesus. It was where the feasts were celebrated, where the sacrifices were made. It was the temple that Jesus visited as a child, going there to celebrate Passover and the other feasts with his family and his friends. Now in the years following Jesus' death and resurrection, so AD 40, AD 50, AD 60, during the time when the Christian church was busy expanding across the Roman Empire, there was centred in Jerusalem this persistent Jewish revolt against their Roman occupiers. And it became so serious that in the end, the emperor sent his son Titus at the head of a Roman army to go and crush the Jewish zealot rebellion. The year is AD 70. Now in the run-up to this Roman attack, there is recorded in ancient writings many miracles and signs and wonders that took place around and about Jerusalem. It is said that the mighty doors that guarded the entrance to the temple, doors that were so heavy, made of solid bronze, it would take 20 men just to open them and shut them. One night, the doors opened by themselves, leaving the temple unguarded. And in the skies around Jerusalem, well, there's an ancient writer called Josephus, who wrote about this. He was a contemporary. He lived through this season and he wrote his, um, kind of recorded all that happened. And this, this is what he said. So one night, this is before the Romans attacked. He said, before sunsetting, chariots and troops of soldiers in their armour were seen running about among the clouds surrounding the cities. Moreover, at that feast which we call Pentecost, yeah, Josephus was a Jew, He said, as the priests were going by night into the inner court of the temple, as was their custom, they were going to perform their sacred ministrations. And they said that in the first place, they felt a quaking and they heard a great noise. And after that, they heard the sound of a great multitude saying, let us remove ourselves. These were the stories that the Jews recorded of what was happening in the run-up 
to the arrival of Titus's army. The Romans encamped themselves around Jerusalem, preparing to attack, building barricades to prevent any escape. Meanwhile, inside the city, inside Jerusalem, a civil war broke out. There were three factions of at least 10,000 men in each who were fighting amongst themselves for control of the city, even to the point that they put, they set Jerusalem or parts of it on fire. So here is the Jewish nation, okay? There's the Romans on the outside coming to suppress them, and they're so busy squabbling amongst themselves that they set their own besieged city on fire. Titus, the Roman commander, he laid siege to Jerusalem, and many of those who were within it refused to surrender. The siege was long, in fact, so long that a great famine broke out in Jerusalem. It's said that bands of robbers were roaming Jerusalem, breaking into houses, literally stealing food from the mouths of children. And it said that so many died that all the graves within Jerusalem were full and they were just throwing the dead bodies over the city walls. So huge piles of dead people were laying outside the city, rotting. The city was weak due to the famine the city was weak due to the civil war and the fact that they keep setting themselves on fire and then the Romans made them move. The Roman army fought its way into the city and after a long and bitter siege, there had been lots of skirmishes and fighting, the Roman commanders lost control of the legions. So great was their bloodlust and their desire to get to the supposed riches that were supposed to be within the temple that the army stormed the temple setting on fire and stealing all the treasures within. I think there's a, a picture here of, that was, you know, I don't think the person was there at the time, but just an image of the, from the descriptions of what it might have been like. And this is what Josephus records. He says, Now all the soldiers, talking about the Roman soldiers, had such vast quantities of spoils, yeah, the stuff that they had stolen from the temple, or the plunder, that in Syria, the pound weight of gold was sold for half of its former value. So the soldiers stole so much gold and treasure that when they brought it back and tried to sell it on the open market, it caused the value of gold to half because they'd flooded it with so much gold. And so it was that the temple of Yahweh in Jerusalem was destroyed for a second time, never to be rebuilt. So great was the destruction that all that remains is one wall, where today Jews still gather to pray in what has become known as the Wailing Wall. It's the last bit of the temple that is left. This was the end of temple-centric worship for the Jewish nation. It was the end of animal sacrifices, the end of Yom Kippur, as described in Leviticus, the Day of Atonement with the goats going out and all that kind of stuff. The ability to worship God as was required by the Old Testament covenants was removed. Now, from our perspective, we can see that actually it's because Jesus had established a new covenant. There was no longer a need to have a house where God would dwell to go and visit him because now God dwells in the hearts of his people. There was no longer a need for animal sacrifices because Jesus, the Lamb of God, had made the ultimate 
sacrifice. He had died to take away the sins of the world. But the Jewish nation and the temple authorities, the religious establishment, they had rejected Jesus, the Son of God, while he walked among them. And so the promised consequences that God had said that were enshrined in that original covenant did indeed come to pass. And it was the prophetic knowledge that all of this was going to happen and all the pain and the suffering that would entail is what called Jesus to weep when he prophetically declared, would that you knew on this day the things that make for peace. For a day is going to come when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and not a stone will be left one upon another. Jesus was not happy at the consequences of the choices that people were going to make. His heart was breaking, and to this day, Jesus' heart breaks when people make self-destructive bad choices. So if I'd told that history, it would have gone, yeah, it happened as Jesus said. (laughs) But you know, that description that Josephus gives of people within the city dying of famine, this would have been men, women, children, it would have been everybody. Famine was the biggest killer, I think. And then those bodies, not fitting in the graves any longer, I mean, thrown over the wall, is quite horrific. But in reference to Josephus' words on that, Spurgeon said, there is nothing in history to exceed this horror, but even this is nothing compared with the destruction of a soul. Jesus said these things would happen to the city because they did not recognise the time of visitation. It's just there. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. You see, Jerusalem had a period of time to recognize the visitation of God on earth. They had several years of Jesus' ministry amongst them to recognize him, to accept him as the promise from God to deliver them into true shalom. That's that wholeness and peace. I believe that we all have a time of visitation. Mark's like, oh no, where's she going with this? (laughs) By that, I mean that we all have a period of opportunity during which we can recognize and accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And I believe that time of visitation is from the day we hear the gospel message, the message that Jesus died for us to save us, this, until the day we breathe our last breath. That is our time of visitation. Listen, the very sad news about the imploded submarine this week must give us all a wake-up call. I'm going to read you some stuff from the BBC News website on it. When a submarine hull collapses, it moves inward at about 1,500 miles per hour. That is 671 metres per second, says Dave Corley, a former US nuclear submarine officer. The time required for complete collapse is about one millisecond or one thousandth of a second. Can you even imagine that length of time? I can't even imagine that length of time. 
A human brain responds instinctually to a stimulus at about 25 milliseconds. But human rational response, that means from sensing something to acting, to doing anything, is believed to be, at best, 150 milliseconds. So the collapse happens in one thousandth of a second, or about one millisecond, and it takes our human brain 150 milliseconds to act upon something. You don't know when you will breathe that last breath. You really don't. Rich or poor, young or old, fit or sick, you still don't know. You don't know when that time of visitation ends for you. They did not know. In a moment, they were dust. One moment, they were on an exciting excursion. In a millisecond, they were dust. And I'm sorry to use that, but I couldn't not use that. When God showed me, it needed to be used. Because the reality is there is no gone with the wind, Scarlet O'Hara. I'll think about that tomorrow. Tomorrow is another day to rely upon. There's only now. Now is all there is. James 4 verse 14 says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Jesus wept over Jerusalem because shalom was theirs if they wanted it in him. But they rejected him and their time of visitation, that opportunity to make a decision to accept him and follow him, was drawing to a close. He knew where he was going in Jerusalem. He knew that his, his destination was the cross. Time was running out for Jerusalem. 2 Peter 3 verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So if you're hearing me today, please know that your time of visitation is already here. You are in your time of visitation until you breathe your last breath. And God is patient and he is gracious, but time will run out at some point. Because 2 Peter 3 verse 10, the very next verse says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. You see, in an instant, the planets and this earth will become dust. But 1 Timothy 2, from verse 3 to 6, says this, God our Saviour wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. So what is the truth that we need to understand to be saved? Well, it's okay. He goes on. For there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man, Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. I feel like I've lost a bit. There it is. <laughs> so that's all it is. Understand that Jesus gave his life on that cross to purchase your freedom from sin and the devil's plan for your life here, right here, now and ever after. I'm going to read to you from Psalm 103, verses 8 to 18. I, yeah, I think I probably will read it all. 
The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide. So he's not always going to be telling you off, nor will he keep his anger forever. He won't hold that back forever. I think that's really interesting. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. And aren't they beautiful right now? But you know, in a couple of months' time, they'll be gone. For the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. That means respect, not terrified. And his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant. You see, Jesus is God's new covenant, just as Mark said. He was the final promised agreement to be made between humanity and God. When Jesus died, he legally removed all possible legal objections, as it were. That means anything that separates us from God so that we could be free to just draw near to God and live in shalom forever. So if you've never made it personal and accepted Jesus as your Lord, acknowledging his sacrifice on the cross as something he did personally for you, to save you. You can do so now, and I'm not going to get you to read it out. I'm going to read it out. What I want you to do is think. I'm going to read it slowly. What I want you to do is think, I agree, I agree, I agree, if you agree in your head, because God can hear your thoughts. So I want your heart to cry out rather than your words to cry out this morning. And as I read this, Remember, when you say amen at the end, it means I agree. So can I say if you don't agree, shut up. And I mean that. We've got to stop just doing what the world's and what everyone in the room's doing. Do it because you mean it, because God really is real and is listening. So don't be lying to him. You say amen because you mean it. And when you mean it, tell someone you meant it. Tell someone later, I meant it. I prayed that prayer and I meant it this morning. All you have to do is agree in your heart. As I say the words slowly so you get a moment to think about them. Okay, let's pray. Father God, I thank you for Jesus. Today, I turn away from my old mindsets, my thoughts and behaviours that have led me astray. And I come into agreement with the covenant of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection that brought me freedom from all power of sin. Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Empower me to live a true life of shalom, in every part of my being, every day. And help me to show the world that I am yours from this day forwards. Amen. And amen means I agree. Now, if you are still unsure about making a commitment to Jesus, 
God is gracious and patient. That's why I read you Psalm 103, because it starts with the Lord is merciful and gracious. He is gracious, he is patient. But I do need to tell you that when you don't say yes to Jesus, you're still making a choice. You haven't parked it for tomorrow is another day because now is all there is. You can't park a choice. You've either said yes or you've said no. It might be no for now because I'm still thinking about it, but I want you to remember that time is running out. The only very sure thing we have in life is that time is actually running out. And it's not a cheerful thought, but it is what it is. And actually, for me, it is a cheerful thought. Hallelujah, time is running out on earth. Let's go party. (laughs) And that's the difference, you see, when you know that your future is certain, it doesn't matter that time is running out, which is why I say it's so blasé. And I have faced death, and I say it blasé, and I have asked to go to death because I knew it was better than here. So just so you're clear, talk to me about it later if you want to. So really know that you have made a choice. You've either said yes today or you've said no. Now, it might be that you want to say yes tomorrow, you want to think about it more. That's fine. I understand that because the God is gracious and patient. But just don't forget that you should probably not put it off till tomorrow. Think about it today, because now is all that is certain. If you have already accepted Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, and you might have been living with him for years, you get to live shalom. And I think this is one of the most key moments of this. I'm going to finish in a moment, but I want us to go there. You see, the things that make for peace that Jesus quoted in our passage today, are yours. We have the things that make for peace. Get this, because I think it's key. And this is the sort of peace that does not rely on external circumstances. It doesn't really matter how angry you feel about something. It doesn't really matter what's going on around you or how uncertain every single day is right now. It doesn't rely on any of that because it's the kind of peace that holds you still through any storm and finds the victory in every trial. Philippians 4 verse 5 to 7 says, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. That's because we cast it off to God when we do that. And the peace of God, which does what? Surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I think too many of us want peace that makes sense. Tough luck, you get peace that surpasses all understanding. And it's part of the agreement that Jesus signed in his blood at the cross. Listen, brothers and sisters here in this room, those of you who have made a commitment to Jesus Christ, either today or hundreds of years ago, or it feels like that right now, I feel a real stirring in my spirit this morning that we need to be living with shalom, peace attitude in this world. That's how we point to Jesus. We aren't just in Hope Church today. Be aware that we carry hope. We carry Jesus. And we are hope. We are Jesus to those who are around us. So listen, guys, we need to stand out a little bit more against the world. And I don't mean by the way you dress or the face you pull. (laughs) People should be meeting us and saying, I want what she's got. If you belong to Jesus, and if you aren't living in that shalom I've just talked about, I really want to promise you, and I promise you, and I don't make promises lightly, I only promise things I know to be true, I promise you 
that you can and there is no reason why you can't. So don't you be looking at your past and what happened to you because there is no past. Past is memories. Future is imagination. There is only now. And you belong to Jesus and you can live this out. The devil's done a great job of making us forget some of God's benefits. So as I bring this to a close, I'm going to pray over us in a minute, but I'm going to read to you our benefits because there are benefits by belonging to God. Psalm 103, verses 1 to 5. I read from Psalm 103, verse 8 earlier. Now I'm back at the beginning of it. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. What are his benefits? He forgives all your iniquity, all your sin, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. There are people of my age and older who really want that one. Those are benefits. So I'm going to say to you, if you want to live out more shalom in daily life, if you don't think that people are turning around and going, I want what she's having, I want what she's got, I want what he's got, I want some of that. If people aren't saying that about you, then you're probably not living out the full shalom because shalom is not, I'm so peaceful. It is, I am whole and I am able. So I want you to stand now. And if I was in the congregation, I'd be straight on my feet. I wouldn't even be thinking about it. So why are you all still sitting? Come on. Those of you who want it, stand. Don't stand if you don't want it. I really believe in this. We've got to stop just going with the crowd, people. So if you don't want it, stay sat. And that's really important to me. Okay, but by standing, you are saying, God, I want more of your shalom. I want to be living in shalom. I want to show you. I want to reflect you. That is what you are saying by standing. So let's pray. Father God, I pray right now for every part that is standing in this room, for every person who has got to their feet, Lord God. And um, if anyone has struggled to get up and is uh, standing in their heart, then Lord, I pray for them too. And I pray right now, Jesus, that you will come and you will anoint anoint us, Lord, to overflow, Lord God, that we will stand out in your shalom. Lord, I pray that you will break those chains that are stopping us, those things that are holding back, Lord God, that are stopping us from just being yours in the world. Lord God, I pray that you will cancel the work of the enemy upon our lives. Lord God, I pray that you will renew our thinking so that we will become restored, Lord God, and look more like you. Lord God, that people will see us and want what we carry because, Lord God, we carry you. So Holy Spirit, come, renew us, refresh us. Lord, thank you that you forgive all our iniquity. You heal all our diseases. You redeem our life from the pit. You crown us with steadfast love and mercy. And you satisfy with good so that our youth is renewed like the eagles. May we soar with you. May we stand out and be true reflections of you, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.